Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences. We're the weekly podcast and radio show of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. If not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or just find us on whatever platform you use under Conversations with Consequences. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie. I'm your hostess at the Catholic Association's show, and I am in Miami and doing a remote show with my good friend, uh, Andrea Picciotti Bayer, the legal <laughs> eagle at the, at the Catholic Association. Hello, Andrea. Hey, Gracie. I'm here in Washington, and it is not as warm as it is in Miami, but it is way warmer than it is in Chicago. Well, we're having trouble uh, dealing here with the frigid temperatures. We're in the upper 60s, lower <laughs> Shut 70s. <up>. <laughs> and it's quite a shocker. And we have a friend joining us today from a, a much more frigid area, right? I think, I think um, Chicago. Chicago from, yeah, is where, you're, where, uh, where, Chicago, our, where our guest right. is from. And I was scraping frost off my car windows this morning to drive my daughter to school. So I don't want to hear either of you complain. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, we're going to no stop whining. Suffering is. You have no idea. You people okay. live like bears. It's very adorable. Yeah. No, whi- no whining from Miami. How's that? I won't whine. So our friend who's joining us is Mary Fiorito, and she's been with us before. And I'm going to yeah, introduce no, I'm, her, I'm, but I'm first... Yes, I'm officially a friend of the show now. Or also known as a repeat offender. That's right. Ah, there you go. <laughs> She's yeah. definitely... Yo, you, you like to call them repeat offenders, I Andrea, do. because you're a lawyer, so you have these, you have these tricks of, of fra- this phrasing. No, and then I realized that that's like a really bad word. No, I'm the, gift, I'm, the gift who, I'm the gift who keeps on giving. Exactly. It's Super Christmas, generous. It's Advent. Let's look at, let's look at me that way. <laughs> Well, so and Gracie, Mary. just like you were saying, she's a leading thinker. Tell us uh, before, just to embarrass Mary, about um, tell everyone about her great uh, bio, because she is a leading thinker. So Mary Fiorito is an attorney and the Cardinal Francis George Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., where she specializes in human life issues and issues related to women and the Catholic Church. Last time she was on, we had a fascinating conversation about perinatal hospice, which I personally knew nothing about. I'm one, it's wonderful that it exists, and um, we'll have to post a link to that show. because Yeah, people was, should go back. It was really, really important. We need to re-listen to that. That's a very important show. But today, Mary, welcome to our show, Mary. Well, thank you. Thank you both for having me again. Always a joy to be with you. <laughs> so one thing that Mary has on her resume is that she was the right-hand woman for many years, the executive assistant, assistant for... Um, Cardinal Francis George, who was the Cardinal of Chicago, and one of those saintly, <coughs> saintly uh, men that come along once in a generation uh, in our prelates in our church. And uh, recently, um, uh, a documentary was made of his life, <coughs> and which is fascinating. It's wonderful, and we wanted to have Marianne to tell us about her own personal experiences of Cardinal Francis George, possibly what what makes him special, what made him special the impact that he had on the church, and um, maybe even uh, the cause for his, his beatification, which might be coming up in the future. Well, thank you. It's always such a joy, Gracie, to talk about the Cardinal and 
the gift that he was to the Catholic Church and to the United States and certainly to the city of Chicago. I Certainly Chicagoans know him and his brother bishops at the Bishops' Conference knew and respected him. Um, and we're just hoping to introduce uh, who he was and what he meant to a, a wider audience so that, as you say, you know, a cause for his um, canonization might get underway. Mary, um, I didn't know much about the Cardinal, although I, I grew up in the Midwest and, and studied in Chicago. I left right when he came in. And then okay. I left the country when he was really kind of a formidable presence in the U.S. And as I've been studying, um, I'm in love with him. I think he's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. He's really incredible. Yeah. And I think it's, it's you say that he was um, incredible for, for the church. I think he is. Mm-hmm. I, really, I really think he is. Let me give yeah. a little bio of the Cardinal for our for our listeners so that they can orient themselves <laughs> if they don't know anything about Cardinal George. You know, I, I know his voice because I listened to Bishop Barron's homilies, and, and his older homilies are introduced by Bishop, by Cardinal, Cardinal George. He has a lovely voice. He had a lovely voice, very warm. Um, so Cardinal George had polio when he was 13, and this caused him to be rejected from the Chicago Seminary when he applied. Um, finally, he was accepted to, to a school run by the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, which was a missionary order. And he went to seminary in Canada. He learned French. He became vicar general and traveled the whole world. He learned Spanish. Um, he was bishop in Yakima, Portland. And then the first Chicago native to become its archbishop under Jean Paul II. Uh, he was president of the United States Council of uh, Catholic Bishops. And he was an amazing defender of the of pro-life of positions, the dignity of human life. He was very intellectual. He wrote three books. He faced a long cancer, which, which finally ended his life. He faced it in a noble way. And he was regarded by many, including Mary, as, as, a, as a pattern, a pattern for all bishops. Mm. That's, yeah, Gracie, that's very, that's very beautifully said. And, you know, the, the documentary, which if your listeners would care to see is available on Shalom World TV. And, and we just, will link uh, to that, Mary. Terrific. We'll link to that Thank on our you. podcast it's, page. It's so inspirational because if anyone, and of course all of us face crosses in life, right, and obstacles, and I think he's one of those people that just presents a model of tenacity and a model of asking God to show his will and and to help him him achieve that will, you know, to help all of us achieve the will that God has for us, you know, how, how we go about doing that. And of course, you know, you referenced the fact that he, he always wanted to be a priest. He said he, he told me once privately that after his first communion was the first time he had a sense he, he wanted to be, he was being called to the priesthood, that his vocation was to be a priest. And, you know, he was one of these people. It's interesting. I just uh, finished writing an article on Dr. Mildred Faye Jefferson, who was one of the great sort of unsung heroes of the pro-life movement, an African-American woman who was the first uh, black woman to graduate from Harvard's medical school. Hmm. And so I was doing a little bit of, you know, background research, and she grew up in this tiny town in Pittsburgh, Texas, and um, but was such a genius. You know, she graduated from high school at 15. She graduated from college at 18. Uh, she applied to medical schools, but they wouldn't take her because she was too young. So she was bored and went and got a master's degree from Tufts <laughs> in biology to pass the time <laughs> until she could apply to Harvard. Uh, she was, you know, just a just a prodigy. 
And very much like Katherine Johnson of that movie Hidden Figures, you know, who was kind of a child prodigy in math and then wound up being one of NASA's most significant female mathematicians. And I was watching this interview with Kevin Costner about that particular, you know, his role in that particular movie. And he said with Katherine Johnson, she was such a brilliant mind. The cream just rose to the top. Hmm. And you, you and, and I think Cardinal George was very much like that. Just this brilliant mind. He applied to Quigley Seminary, which would have been in that day our high school seminary, and um, which did have a, a significant number of stairs. And his uh, parents were told by the rector at the time, you know, he could have difficulty negotiating those stairs. Now, of course, he'd gone to the Catholic grade school, St. Pascal's on Chicago's northwest side, and had been able to, you know, manage the the stairs and the commute fairly well. But then they told his parents. Well, Mary, Even wasn't there did, there's something about the number of buses and transfers right. as he well? He would have so. had to have had two, right, two, two bus transfers. But for Chicagoans, that's nothing. <laughs> but Mary, Mary, is that because he didn't recover fully from the polio? Well, he his, his uh, one of his legs was in a, almost a full leg brace. And so um, he, you know, he fell frequently and sometimes the brace would lock, you know. So he, he was in a leg brace and did have, you know, he walked with a pronounced limp. You, you could always see that. Um, when he was moving from place to place, and often he would have to sit instead of stand to give talks, especially as he became um, more weak from the cancer later in his life. Um, but they, you know, the, the seminary rector allegedly told his parents, listen, even if we do accept him, we're not going to ordain him. And so he, you know, but why? Some, what was the I reasoning behind was, that? Well, remember with polio back in those days, yeah. Gracie, they, they didn't know, there wasn't a lot of of post-polio studies at that time, right? So would he be able, would he have full use of his hands? Would he be able to, mm-hmm. you know... Um, and to stand to and to be function. able to celebrate the Mass? Correct. Well, and, and we right. also need to know, like, at that right. time, too, our understanding of the the mobility of the disabled with assistance Correct. and support is was much different. Um, right. And, and, you know, it did impact his handwriting. And so I think, too, the concern was, would he be able to, you know... Um, to celebrate mass as as it needs to be celebrated, you know what I'm saying, in, in terms mm-hmm. of his ability to do that. So I, I don't think they were being intentionally cruel. I think it, it was just simply just a combination of things, but that God used yeah. absolutely to his glory um, because, you know, he wound up coming back as the archbishop having been rejected by the, the Diocese of Seminary. So it's a, I mean, it's a wonderful story, but he himself always was very um, gracious in the way he referred to what happened. And he it was always very kind and simply said, you know, my, my parents were simply told that the stairs might be too much for me. Mm-hmm. The, the rector had my best interest at heart. He never, never, ever did one of these things where he said, well, see, you got what was coming to you. And he <laughs> never used it. He was sort of like the Old Testament Joseph, right, when his brothers show back up. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he is kind to them and he feeds them. So it was a little bit of that. But there was one time I was with him at a presentation he was giving to uh, Chicago's up-and-coming leaders. There's a program in Chicago called Leadership Greater Chicago, and it's a you have to become a fellow, and it's and it's for everyone who is sort of maybe in their late 20s, early 30s, who is projected to become sort of a leader, mover, shaker in the city. And so they they gather all of these you know young 20-something, 30-somethings together once a year with city leaders to talk about you know what makes the city work, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we have the biggest private school system in Chicago and the largest number of private hospitals and charitable organizations. So the meeting with the cardinal is always on the agenda. And so we were sitting there. I was I was went as staff with him that day. And there was a um, man who raised his hand and 
said, you know, my uh, my pastor said growing up, there's two kinds of priests, the ones who really want to serve the poor and the ones who want to become bishops. Which one were you growing up? Hmm. And I just, first of all, was just stunned by the rudeness of the question. But, that you know, is the so rude. Did, isn't that rude? I was, yeah. I, was, I was offended for him. And But, you know, he he was one of these people where, he, like, he gave as good as he got, you know what I'm saying? And he, <laughs> he kind of shrugged. He's like, well, he goes, you know, probably there was a time in my life when I thought something like that, too. He said, but I'm going to tell you a little story. When I when I was 13, I made two conscience, conscious decisions. First, that I would never come back to Chicago because when I joined the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, they never sent their mission because the missionary order missionaries were never sent back to their home dioceses. Mm-hmm. So I knew I was leaving when I left. I was except to come back and visit my parents occasionally. I was leaving Chicago for good. I would never minister here. That was my first choice. My the second decision I consciously made is that I would never be a bishop because hmm. at the time the Holy Father was not making religious order priests bishops. They only came from the diocesan priesthood. So he said, those were the two things I knew would never happen. I'd never be a bishop and I'd never be back in Chicago. And here I am. So, <laughs> and I said, you know, the moment in scripture would, when, when the Lord, you know, directs somebody and then, and then the scripture tells us, and they were too afraid to ask him any other questions. It kind of went from there. It kind of went like that. He put a stopper and, on that, on that conversation. No, he did. And not to be, he wasn't. You know, again, this is what I, always impressed me about the Cardinal. He wasn't trying to do a gotcha with the guy. He wasn't trying to embarrass mm-hmm. him. He was being very factual. And um, I that's what I always loved about him. It, 99 times out of 100, he was always the smartest man in the room. Always. Mm-hmm. And But he never put people down. He knew. It was one of these. One of my friends said, you know, he's one of these really smart people that knows he's smarter than everybody else. But he doesn't intend to humiliate anyone. He, he really just wants to share what he knows. Mm-hmm. And so he never would intentionally embarrass anyone that way. So I just thought he handled that in such a gracious way. But you think, to me, it's always just such a marvel in in the way that God can work, something we think will never be possible. And God makes the impossible, what seems impossible, possible. And I think you just see that played out over and over again in his life. Mary, there's, um, in doing a little bit of research, there was something that, that caught my eye as a lawyer. And it was before he got to Chicago. And it was, I think it was when he was out on the West Coast and there was a a priest attending to prisoners in a jail and Mm -hmm. received uh, a confession. um, And it was surreptitiously recorded by the Mm. jailers. And um, they used it against the the penitent. And um, George, Cardinal George led, at the time, Bishop, um, George led the the cause on behalf of getting rid of that recording, um, and yeah. and eventually won in the Ninth Circuit, which is not <laughs> known for um, defending tradition often, right. but they did, and and I think it it was kind of a harbinger of what he would continue to do in his leadership role, um, both in Chicago and on a national level, of really kind of being in the forefront to defend. Uh, Kind of the Catholic principles, and um, and not shy away from kind of clashing with civil authorities when when you have to. Right. Well, religious liberty issues were extremely important to him, and you know when we saw that with the Obamacare mandate, for example, he was very much out in front yeah. and speaking on that and saying, you know, what you are trying to do is reduce 
the Catholic Church to its worship only. Mm-hmm. So you may be you may worship in your churches, but you may not you may not be who you are in the public square, which is exactly Andrea, as a, as a lawyer, you know this exactly the opposite of what the Constitution says mm-hmm. and what the what the First Amendment protects, which is our ability to be who we are as Catholics in the public square. If you are Catholic and you work in the post office, which is a federal agency, you may wear your ashes on Ash Wednesday on your forehead and no one may tell you to take them off. Um, you know, you are allowed to be who you are. If you are Sikh and you're a Sikh man who wears his headdress, you may do that. If you are in the army or you work again, you work at the post office or any other government agency and the government may not compel you not to practice your faith in public. And so, um, you know, obviously the violation of the confessional seal, very, very serious, um, you know, broach of, I mean, not just certainly, you know, moral principles, but also I mean, just constitutional mm-hmm. ones to, to violate this man's right to be able to, you know, um, uh, well, re- and, the, and the interest of the priest yeah. to be able to go Correct. and attend and minister to, to people without this fear of, you know, being used as a tool for correct and being hauled into court to testify about what he hears, which, of course, he cannot do. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's um, it, it's frightening to think that in this country there would even be an attempt to hmm. do something like that. Well, I mean, it, that it's that rearing might... its head again. Right. I mean, there were sure, right? a, especially California, in California again. That, right? Yeah. What was yeah, interesting, so. too, is um, Card- the cardinal at the time not only took it to kind of correct and make sure that the rule of law was was properly um, enforced and respected. But then he also, as a, a strong pastor, I thought was giving a, a bit of a catechesis saying that our faith includes not only worship, but also living out, for example, the corporate works of mercy. And so uh, in the context of Obamacare, it was, it means attending to the sick in our hospitals consistent with our faith. And so it was kind of, he, he didn't just go out there as a, as a courageous kind of um, stalwart in the public square, but he was still pastor, reminding all right, Catholics, right. You, don't, you don't just live your faith in the pew on Sunday. You go out there and you live as Catholics everywhere. Correct, yes. And that was, you know, um, he, he said that in a variety of different ways that, you know, our our service to the poor, um, the spiritual and corporal works of mercy, you know, um, being able to bury the dead. You know, for example, um, there, uh, there's been some recent stories, right, about this Dr. Kopfler. In, horrible. Uh, in, uh, horrible who, person. Horrible, who had three uh, abortion clinics in Indiana but lived in Illinois. Um, and, you know, thousands of fetal remains of unborn children he had aborted were found in his, the trunk of his Mercedes, in his garage. Um and of course, the the the, Creepy, the dioceses. Weird Creepy. Oh, hor- horrible! But you know, and not the first time. I mean, not the first time this has happened. Um, there there was a case in California in Los Angeles where I think fifteen thousand fetal remains were found in a storage locker. Um, yeah. oh, it's so a total it's a, lack of a total lack of respect for humanity for the for the integrity of you, human beings. Yeah. I, mean, I know this is going a little bit off topic, but you know, it, it does. It uh, some and Dr. Gosnell did this, of course, too. In um, in, in, in the Philadelphia clinic, except he, you know, he kind of hoarded fetuses and that he had aborted in you know, milk jugs and other horrible things around his clinic. So it seems that, you know, I, I was reading something about serial killers where they talk about they often keep trophies of their victims, you know, and that yeah. maybe was I know it's a horrible, horrible thing. But Cardinal George was um, uh, as, as Cardinal Bernadine did beforehand. Um, 
uh, buried, you know, fetal remains that either had been found or discarded mm-hmm. or, and was very much saying, you know, that, that the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy include attending to the poor, but also burying the dead with dignity. That's one of our, you know, mm-hmm. works of mercy. Mm-hmm. And that we should be allowed to do that without government interference, as we have for the last 200 years. Absolutely. Mary, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back uh, to talk to you more about Cardinal George. Wonderful. Welcome back, friends. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. I'm joined today with by my friend, the legal advisor at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and another friend joining us from Chicago, Mary Fiorito. She's an attorney and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and she was for a long time the executive assistant of Cardinal Francis George of Chicago, Um, a saintly man and a fabulous bishop and cardinal and she is going she's been telling us about his life we we were talking about um, how cardinal george was a a staunch defender of religious liberty uh, especially when it came up during the obamacare uh, mandate if if our listeners remember uh, which is still going on right those (laughs) things are still uh uh, before the, before the courts with the little the little sister still defending themselves from the Obamacare contraception mandate, and he defended uh, the idea that that religious liberty doesn't mean that you get to choose which church you go to on Sunday, that it means that you actually get to live out your faith wherever you work and in in your at school at your school and um, outside and it's not a private thing, so but we want to ask you. Talk to you, Mary, uh, some more about Cardinal George, but about his his intellectual um, weight, what he, what his intellect and what he what he brought to the table there. And Mary, some people called him the American Ratzinger, which oh, I'm yeah, sure is <laughs> people like catchy phrases. But oh yeah, that's well, kind of huge. Yeah, that is well in terms of you know. I, and I think some people mean that pejoratively and some people mean it as a compliment. And certainly uh, the compliment side of it would be the level of intellect, though I think the cardinal himself would say that um, Pope Benedict is in a different class of intellect altogether, that he really is of the genius category. But um, and, you know, there's many who say that Benedict is going to be one of the doctors of the church at some mm. point, um, such as, you know, are his intellectual gifts. But uh, but Cardinal George had two earned doctorate degrees, one in American philosophy from Tulane and uh, one in ecclesiology from one of the pontifical universities in Rome. And so he he was a very learned man. He was um, he was an incredibly well-read man. And uh, he spoke six languages fluently, Italian and French and hmm. Spanish. Uh, he the one language in, that, that's sort of necessary to minister in Chicago, which is Polish, because <laughs> we have more pe- more people from Poland live in Chicago than live in all of Warsaw. <laughs> so uh, that's true. I mean, it's it's a it's a huge part of the Catholic population here. And he was never quite able to, to master the Polish. But it's um, a very hard was, language. Oh, it's a very difficult language. And uh, and the Poles were always very kind to him, you know, when he would try. And uh, uh, but it's um, the one story I remember we had the at one point, the French ambassador to the United States came to visit Chicago uh, specifically to our, our pastoral center building, the former Quigley uh, Seminary, because the chapel there is an exact replica of Saint-Chapelle. 
And mm. one of the windows there uh, was made with glass uh, from from France that was retrieved, I think, from one of their churches that, uh, you know, fell during one of the bombings of the Germans. And so uh, when the when that window, because the glass in it is so valuable, began to deteriorate, the French um, government at no charge sent one of their their stained glass experts to Chicago to help repair that window. And wow. so there was a lovely reception um, at uh, at the uh, pastoral center for the French ambassador. And I was the person who went down to greet him and to bring him up to the cardinal's office. And of course, you know, uh, not to, you know, throw out stereotypes about the French, but they're, um, they, they generally don't think that anyone speaks French as well as they do. And they tend to not <laughs> take kindly to, you know, Americans who think that they are they, fluent in French. They think they we butcher read. the language. <laughs> yes, they do. And so they're very, as you know, friends, the French, and, and of course, all of their diplomatic corps speak fluent, you know, speak fluent English. If they're sent here, their English is impeccable. They're not here because they don't speak good English. But I brought the cardinal, or sorry, I brought the ambassador into the cardinal's office. Of course, he stood up, he greeted him in French. And the, the entire, com- which I think quite surprised the ambassador, and the entire conversation was in French. Hmm. And after nice. the meeting, I went to, to escort him back downstairs. And he looked at me, the ambassador did, with incredulity and said, his French is perfect. Hmm. <laughs> it is, he said, we don't normally, he said, we Frenchmen don't normally say that his French is perfect. And of course, his order, his religious order, the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, were a French order founded by St. Eugene de Massonade. And um, the, the language of the house was French. And so, you know, he, while he went, you know, of course, to the seminary in the United States, when he was sent away to major seminary at St. Paul's in Ottawa, Canada, that the language of the house was French, so that's all they spoke at the house was French. And um, when he would um, meet with John Paul II, they spoke to each other in French, because it was John Paul's best foreign language, and it was the Cardinal's best foreign language. So when they met with each other, they spoke to each other in French. Hmm. Not Polish. So a, yeah, a little, <laughs> not Polish, not Polish, but yeah, John Paul, again, some similarities, right, in terms of the intellect and the ability to master so many languages, which in the church today is such a gift, I think, for any bishop to be able yeah. to um, to be able to well, speak bri- to different people. Builds different bridges cultures. with your community, right? And what, cer- what were his books does. about? What were his books about that he wrote, Mary? So he wrote. Well, he he has three books. Um, uh, God in Action. Um, it, it would be the one that I would kind of start with if you're a newbie to Cardinal George's work. Hmm. But he talks about you know, the, the presence of God in everyday life. Um, the very last book he wrote that he was actually working on when he, literally the week that he died, is called The Godly Humanism, Clarifying the Hope That Lies Within. But he, he tells a beautiful story um, in God in Action, which is his first book. And he talks about how when he was a missionary uh, for the Oblates, he went to, he was vicar general for the Oblates for many years. And because of that, had to go and visit all of the different mm-hmm. oblate mission sites throughout the world. So I, I can't think of a country in the world he, he wasn't in at some point. <laughs> I'm sure there's some of them, but there's not a lot. And he was talking about meeting uh, with some of the other missionaries. Um, some uh, They were in a country in Africa, and I'm trying to remember this. I'm sorry, I don't know it offhand. But they were they had met some people who, were, who you know, native to the area, and they were telling him about Jesus. They were telling this young man about Jesus. And finally, after this long conversation, the man shook his head and he said, he said, I, I just don't believe it. And they said, well, what, what is it you don't believe? And he said, it's just, it's too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Someone who would die for someone else. Mm-hmm. He said, it's, it's too good to be true. It that is. doesn't exist. Like, <laughs> isn't true. that a beautiful story? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that the Cardinal would often say to us as pastoral center employees, and um, 
and this is reflected in his books, this theory, what, what would we do differently here if God didn't exist? Is there anything we would do differently? And that was really, you know, again, he was a philosopher. His, his PhD is from uh, Tulane in, in American philosophy. And so he's, he would really think things through to their, to their logical ends. You know, and I remember too, um, you know, when, when marriage redefinition was being sort of debated worldwide. And do you remember in, in France of all countries, where there was a huge rally, and I think 300,000, do you remember that? 300, yeah, it was so people, impressive. Yeah, to show up to defend marriage. And I said to him, I'm like, gosh, France of all places. I always think of France as being so, you know, progressively secular. He said, no, he said, Mary, in France, children in elementary school start taking philosophy. They teach them how to think. Hmm. Mm-hmm. They teach them how to think. That's and so right, they, Mary. And they've obviously understood that... It, it's not possible for two men to marry. It's not as if it is. This is a discriminatory action. It isn't, you know, biologically or metaphysically possible for a man to marry another man because there can't be a conjugal union, and that's what marriage is. It's a conjugal union. So, um, so you know, he was very, you know, he could he could present things in a way that even, you know, even his detractors and people who disagreed with him would would very much have to, you know, take to respect him because he was never unkind to anyone, as I mentioned in our first segment, but also he was fair and he presented things in a way that always made you rethink your own position on something. Mary, I want to go back. Um, you mentioned that he had two doctorate uh, mm-hmm. titles and, and I, in, in looking at things, I, I saw one of the theses was, um, I think in the second one that he did at the Pontifical University was entitled Enculturation and Communion. And when yes. I read that, I went, the Pachamama. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, are you still agonizing no. over the Pachamama? No, I don't agonize. Uh, I throw her in the time. Um, but I was wondering, it, 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 I obviously didn't have a chance to read it. Um, but but I bet you did. And um, given the history of the Cardinal in working with communities as a missionary and within Chicago with a really diverse community, what was enculturation and how it, in oh, the context yeah. of enculturation <clears throat> and communion, kind of thinking about the universal church? Right. Well, again, it was an entire doctoral dissertation, so I am not going to try, attempt to do it to do it justice. But I, I think, you know, he made me you know, rethink some uh, perhaps prejudices that I had, you know, where he would say, you know, he, he lived, uh, you know, was Bishop of Yakima, Washington, as you know, for gosh, almost 10 years, he was in Yakima. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, there's a large Native American population there, but also a large migrant population there. And I learned, I learned so much from him. He was um, huge on social know, justice. Oh, very much so. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I mean, the joke in the office was he had the vow of poverty. We all lived it with him, you know, and um, <laughs> he he and I'm not kidding. I mean, he really took um, his vow of poverty seriously, um, serving the poor. And I remember one time, you know, he was talking to, I think, a group of wealthy donors. And he was saying to them, listen, you know, the poor um, need you. They can't survive without you. He said, but you're not going to get to heaven without the poor. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. which I, you know, he didn't mean it to be unkind. He said, "You need the poor because mm-hmm. you need them to help you, um, so that you know, to, so that to take you out of your selfishness, right? Mm-hmm. To make you, to make you uh, learn to give. To so, um, and his his love for the poor and his, I mean, he had a real heart for people who were poor and um, particularly the people who were struggling. And, you know, we would get letters. For, I, I one of the things I did was I managed the Cardinal's charitable uh, account and. 
um, he would any gift people give him. I hope no one, whoever gave him cash, will hear this and be hurt. But like he would, he almost always gave everything away. He on mm. occasion, a rare occasion, would buy himself a book, mm. but everything else he would turn around, he would give it to me. It would go into his charitable account, and we would give it to the poor. I mean, and things like, you know, a widow on Chicago's West Side who couldn't pay her rent, you know, wrote, wrote a letter, and I think for the next six months we paid the rent. You know, no. just just privately. No, you know, we just no fanfare. Every month, you know, fanfare. No, you know, um, and and things like that happened all the time. Where, you know, we would he would see something in the paper and come out and say, "See if you can find this family. I want to send them something." You know, he he really did have a heart for people who were suffering, and you know, and I think too, as someone who had a life of physical suffering. Mm -hmm. um, you know, his his sister said this to me one time, and, and I think she even mentions it in the documentary. You know, the key to understanding my brother is to know that he is never not in pain. Hmm. He is in pain all the time. And he and you know the thing is like and I would complain of like a hangnail, you know, <laughs> and and it, it it to me when I um when I think of what his phys his day to day physical life must have been, how hard it must have been, and you know the the and Mary, most I, people, most of us who are in chronic pain, it makes us irritable and annoyed right. and and unkind, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And he, you know, now again, I I think when uh, Andrea, when you mentioned, you know, he was sometimes called the the um, the American Ratzinger, and I think the pejorative part of that that comment would have been certainly, you know, that he was seen as being a hardline doctrinal guy who was this gruff, angry man. And he wasn't like that at all. Now, did he have moments of irritation because he was in kinds of pain? Sure. But like, which, who, who among us doesn't? Um, and the thing is, if he did, for example, you know, have a moment where he might snap at somebody, he always called the person back and apologized and would say, please forgive me for being short with you or, um, you know, uh, would make amends with that person. He took that very seriously. And, you know, he was someone who regularly, of course, examined his conscience, who, you know, I, I know he, he regularly went to confession, though he never talked about that. I know he had a regular confessor and spiritual director. And um, so he didn't try to sort of go it alone. If, uh, you know, he knew that the responsibility he was undertaking when he took the the position as the Archbishop of Chicago um, that it would require it would require his own personal holiness mm -hmm. and his own regular examination of himself. Um, so it, uh, you know, it, it, it's the there's, it, when you look back at the whole trajectory of his life. And again, when I just think at the time when he was what that must have felt like for a 13 year old boy who only wanted to be a priest to have the seminary say to you, you can't come here. And even if you do, we won't let you be a priest. How that must have. But, you know, it, but how that he had the spunk, you know, it's in one of his letters you know, forget them. I'm going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a priest anyway. So, um, but I love that about him. You know, he, he always had that respect for the church and the church's judgment, but by the same token, you know, there are prudential, prudential judgment calls and then there's church teaching. So, <laughs> Mary, you mentioned that because of his affliction, there were times that he might even fall or had yeah. to, you know, sit instead of stand. Um, and, yeah. and, that really requires a lot of humility. Oh gosh, yeah. And he, you know, and he said that, he said that to all of his priests when he met with all of his priests privately. He said, "There will be times when I fall. I mean, literally, I will fall, and just don't make a big deal of it. Pick me up." And I remember one time in the office, it, I was it, his priest secretary, and I were standing next to the desk. And he got up from the desk too quickly, and he just went flat down, you know, 
and of course, you know, me being a mom, I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, hurry! You know, I, 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 I was <laughs> get the ice pack. Off. The and ice pack. He looked at me like back off, and I was like, well, okay, sorry, come over. You know what I mean? I was, you know, and his priest secretary, who of course lived with them and was much more accustomed, just said, Mary, just help, just help him get up. And I was like, and I was, you know, running for the, you know, my first aid box and everything else, and um, and he wanted no sympathy. I mean, he wanted no attention. He wanted no sympathy. And I, you know, I apologized to him later. I said, I'm sorry, it's my, you know, my mom gene just kicked in there <laughs> and he laughed and and he said it's all right it's all right he said mary don't think about it so but um but there, mary there i'm curious good i'm Sorry. curious about something i i said in the beginning of the show that i'm a very big fan of bishop Barron and yeah. his word on fire ministry what what was the association in the beginning with between bishop Barron and cardinal george and did, well, was he involved yeah. in the word on fire ministry the he kickoff was. and and getting yeah. it started Oh, absolutely. That thank you for asking that, um, Gracie, because I I think actually it really is ultimately Cardinal George who's responsible for Word on Fire. Mm-hmm. And as Bishop Barron tells it, they uh, Bishop Barron would live at the Cardinal's residence periodically um, when he was working on a particular project or something, and he had a small room at the Cardinal's residence where he would occasionally stay. And so there were a couple of months, and the, the Cardinal had gone to see John Paul II. I think it was on his the, the Ed Limina visit. And had come back because John Paul had asked him very directly, what are you doing to evangelize the culture Hmm, in your diocese? And so wasn't that a great question? And so the cardinal said, I didn't know how to answer him. You know, so he said to Bob Barron at dinner, Bishop Barron rather, at dinner, what are we doing to evangelize the culture? And so they began to talk. And the idea of Word on Fire sort of sort of came to light. So Bishop Barron says, I may be kind of the father of Word on Fire, fire because, you know, the, I, I guess technically I'm the one who started it. He said, but Cardinal George is the spiritual grandfather mm-hmm. of Word on Fire. He said, because I don't think had he not put that question to me and said, you need to help me answer the Holy Father's question. Mm-hmm. Um, Would he found, find the answer? Right. So, so he, Cardinal... Uh, they, Yes, go ahead. Cardinal George died in 2015. Was he able to see the the, the trajectory of Word on Fire, the way it's it's gotten he started? Was. Was oh, absolutely, yes, he was, and and how it went from just you know uh, Bishop Barron would do what they call in in uh, priest parlance the supply. So he was kind of a weekend helper priest at a parish up on Chicago's North Shore. And it started with them just kind of recording his homilies. I mean, the parishioners there just, you know, loved his, I mean, people would, you know, call the rectory, find out what mass he was saying. They would go to that mass. They would <laughs> try to tape that, you know, on their phones, get the homilies. Um, and uh, so it, it began with just kind of taping his Sunday homilies. And then we made those available on, we have a little small Catholic radio station in Chicago, and we would play those every Sunday morning before people, you know, so people could listen before they went to Mass. And then and then it just really snowballed from there, you know, the interest in, in Bishop Barron's work and his ministry. And of course, the Cardinal's, I think, greatest gift to Bishop Barron was making him rector of Mundelein Seminary, hmm. which gave him a national platform. Um, and of course, Bishop Barron's presence at the seminary really increased, uh, you know, I, I, I think fivefold the number of men, number of bishops who sent their men to Mundelein to study so that they could study under someone like mm-hmm. uh, a Bishop Barron, you know, who, who again takes that that concept of evangelizing the culture. How are we speaking to the culture? Um, how are we meeting people where they are? And, you know, I think that's such an important question for us all to, you know, it's, I mean, I know you are both active, uh, Gracie, particularly you on, on Twitter. I don't know how you do it without losing your mind. Um, but you, but you <laughs> that say, that's part of the fun. Her mind. Mary, that's part <laughs> of the fun. <laughs> Oh my God, that's your that's your Cuban gene or something. You you like to get in there and, and and mix it up with those folks. But some of it, I just think, is this really our culture? Are people this 
cruel and and um, unkind and 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 unthinking, you know. Um, uh, that, Mary, that's what kind of strikes me. Yes. Um, I just before we have we have to end. I wanted to ask real quick. Um, 2020 is when, a, you know, the a cause for sainthood could be initiated. Is that correct? Yes. For five years after death, correct. And, so April, it'll be April of 2015, or sorry, 2020 rather. And I know people are kind of skittish these days around mm-hmm. the issues of beatification yeah. and things like that. But um, do you? You know the people who knew him. Um, you knew him. Is this something that we can look forward to? The church in in America and the the universal church look forward to someone who, in our lifetimes, can their cause can be lifted up. Oh, you know, Andrea, I I there's no one you speak to in Chicago who knew him well who doesn't say he wasn't a saint. Hmm. There's no. I mean, you know, it it there really is sort of that you know. The Vox Populi, right? The voice of the people, and um, or like we saw with John Paul II, right? Santo Subito. Let's just get, let's get it over. <laughs> get right him up now. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember and, that. And so w- when you just have such a sense of the personal holiness, and I would really encourage your listeners. First of all, if you're ever in the Chicago area, the Cardinal chose to be buried next to his mom and dad hmm. in in the family plot at, um, at at All Saints Cemetery in Des Plaines, Illinois. Not you're very close to O'Hare Airport. So um, you know, and I think with that. Well, there are a lot of graces to visit his grave. Well, there's tremendous graces. And there's, you know, I occasionally, you know, if I'm up in the area, I pop in and say hello to him. And, Hmm. um, you know, he there's never not someone there, which I've always found very interesting. There's almost always I can't think of maybe one time I went there wasn't somebody standing there already. And I always thought, you know, I think that speaks that, that someone would go and be praying at someone's grave. Um, you know, five years after they died, he's not really a you know, name that you that you hear much in the news or whatever. Um, but that people first of all, people have figured out where his grave is and hmm. they go to visit it. And um, I, I love the fact that he you know, there's been so many attacks and threats on marriage and the family. And I think he was we never spoke about it explicitly but that he was sending a message about about being part of a family. He said, you know, that's where everyone starts, right? You're someone's daughter, you're someone's son. You know, you, you begin life in a family, and that's what the church is. You are part of a family. And so I think, I, I do get that sense that that's the, one of the last messages he wanted to send about us being part of families, and that's why he chose to be buried, not in the bishop's mausoleum, but next to his mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mary, you know, we have to stop, but uh, thank you for telling us about Cardinal George, and I hope that our listeners, uh, we're going to put links to the to the documentary and to, um, and, and I hope they learn a lot about Cardinal George, and they can start praying to him, too. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. we have a lot to look forward to, maybe a new saint in a few years for you're our from church. Your, you're from your mouth to God's ear, Gracie. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. Thanks, Andrea Mary. Gracie. What a pleasure to be with you both. Thank you. It was ours. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. Every week, Father Roger Landry gives us a treat, and he sends us a homily for this upcoming Sunday's Gospel. Stay tuned for Father Landry's homily. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday. The church celebrates the feast of the baptism of the Lord Jesus. The end of decades of hidden life, Jesus' full identity was revealed to the Jordan when the Holy Spirit descended upon him and God the Father spoke from heaven saying, This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus received John's baptism, which was just a sign of our need for repentance, and instituted another one that would accomplish what Jesus' baptism was signifying, that would actually wipe away our sins. That baptism 
that Jesus began by sanctifying the waters of the Jordan, he would announce in his valedictory address before ascending to the Father when he told us to go baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to carry out everything I have commanded you. Countless generations before us put those words in action, and eventually each one of us was brought into that saving stream of life-giving water where Jesus, through our minister, cleansed us of sin and filled us with God's own life. It was on that day that God the Father lovingly adopted us as beloved children and inaudibly but truly said of us what he said of Jesus. This is my son, this is my daughter, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. St. John the Evangelist stressed the joy of this baptismal reality in his first letter when he said, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, yet that is what we are. The deepest reality of our existence is that we are God the Father's beloved sons and daughters. The most important day of our life, no matter how old we are, no matter how much or how little we'll have accomplished in the eyes of the world, is the day of our baptism. The Father's words taking us as his own and telling us how much he loves us have no expiration date. The key for us, though, is not to forget who we truly are. St. Leo the Great, in a famous 5th century homily, exhorts us to live up to the dignity we receive in baptism. That's the purpose of the celebration of Christ's birth each year, to remind us of our own rebirth of water and the Spirit to help us live as chips off the old divine block. St. Leo urges us, Christian, remember your dignity. Now that you share in God's nature by baptism, do not return by sin to your former condition. Bear in mind who is your head and of whose body you are a member. Don't forget that you have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of God's kingdom. Through the sacrament of baptism, you have become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not drive away so great a guest by evil conduct and become again a slave to the devil, for your freedom was bought by the blood of Christ. To remember that baptismal dignity and live in accordance with it constitute the central task of the Christian life. We're called to live consciously as God's beloved kids, called to live that new life in loving communion with God and others, behaving in the world in such a way that others may witness the difference baptism makes. One of the problems, though, in doing so is for most of us, we were baptized before we were capable of having any memory at all. It's one of the reasons why the church places holy water fonts at the entrances so that we, as we enter the church, will recall the saving waters of baptism, the waters that made us holy sons and daughters of God. As we take that blessed water, renew our baptism as we make the sign of the cross and profess our faith in the Trinity. But if the day of our baptism is the most important day of our life, and it is, then we should act like it is. One thing Pope Francis is always asking is that we celebrate the day of our baptism. Do you know what the day of your baptism is? Mine is April 19th. Likewise, if you're a godparent, he's calling you to help celebrate the feast of the baptism of your godchildren, remembering those days. And if you're going to get a present for a godchild, even before you would get one on Christmas or on the birthday, give it on the baptismal anniversary so that a child learns to treat the day of baptism as a truly special day. What do we do on the anniversary of our baptism? We could light our baptismal candle and ask ourselves the question, are we still walking as a child of light with the flame of faith alive in our hearts? So the priest instructed us the day we were baptized. 
We could remember our baptismal garment or maybe even take it out if it's there. We were instructed that day to see in that white garment the outward sign of our Christian dignity and take that dignity unstained into eternal life. We could ask, how are we doing in maintaining that dignity? Finally, we remember that the priest said a prayer over our ears and lips, asking God, who made the deaf hear and the dumb speak, to touch our ears to receive his word and our mouths to proclaim his faith to the praise and glory of God the Father. We can ask, are we listening to God in prayer and scripture? Are we speaking of him with the lips he gave us to others? At the beginning of Mass on Sunday, the priest will say, Almighty ever-living God, who when Christ had been baptized in the river Jordan and as the Holy Spirit descended upon him, solemnly declared him to be your beloved son, granted we, your children by adoption, reborn of water and the Holy Spirit, may always be well-pleasing to you. So we prepare to have this consequential conversation with God on Sunday. Let us ask him to revivify in us the grace of the most important day of our life. God bless you. Thank you so much, Father Landry, for another wonderful homily to set us up for this Sunday's coming gospel. Andrea, we had a really nice conversation with Mary Fiorito from the Ethics and Public Policy Center on Cardinal Francis George. And I didn't know much about him before I started researching for this uh, for this show, but uh, I'm excited to get to know more about him. No, it's uh, great. I'm going to start with his first book that she mentioned that I can't remember the name right now, but you have I'm to watch find the it. documentary. Everyone should watch this documentary that we're going to link because it's it's lovely, and you really see the human side of him as well as the incredible brain and fidelity to the church, and love for his faithful. Don't you think this is the time to concentrate on our wonderful bishops, our wonderful yeah. cardinals? You know what? And- Absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. Right now, um, the faithful are strong, but we're. We need our hierarchy. We need them to be um, kind of those examples that lift us all up. And and Cardinal George is exactly one of those uh, living, you know, in his life was a perfect example of that. And, you know, like always, it's the bad apples that get all the attention, right? And it's the ones that end up on the news. Yeah, I'm ignoring them. I'm totally ignoring all of those. Right. Few, those few. So let's think about people like Cardinal George instead. You've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, a service of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Gracie, Dr. Gracie Christie, joined today by Andrea picciotti Bayer and our friend Mary Fiorito. Thank you so much for joining us. Look up our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to subscribe and rate us and review us, which helps other listeners find us. And we'll be talking to you next week.